Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers, here with Steve O'Neill, and our very special guest, Laura Rand. And we're here to talk about the merger of DFID, the Department of International Development, with the Foreign Office. So, welcome, Laura. Thank you very much for coming on. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure, Yeni. Thanks, Martin. And thanks, Steve, for having me on. Um, So, yes, uh, my name is Laura. And um, the reason uh, I think I'm invited to talk about this topic tonight is because I used to be a special advisor in the Department for International Development. Laura, let's talk about the the merger of DFID and the FCO. So are there policy reasons for doing this? Or is it a sort of cynical political move? Isn't it a is it an attempt, as some people have said, to distract from um, the situation around COVID and Cummings? Or does rolling DFID into the FCO allow aid to become part of foreign policy in a more coordinated way? Whether it might, for example, allow us to coordinate our strategic interests, similar to how China are doing. So, um I I definitely think it's a policy that's sort of the overarching reason. But I mean, I mean, it's been well known that especially within conservative um, members, uh, it's been a long held view that DFID should be um, brought into uh, the Foreign Office. And I guess also when you just look back historically, um, you know, during the Labour government, DFID has usually been a standalone department and during most conservative uh, premierships it's been uh, as part of the FCO and the only exception really was under David Cameron and um, the coalition days so in that sense um, you know I think there is an element of politics but I think that is largely rooted in in policy you know policy viewpoints and uh, I think in particular having the Prime Minister Boris Johnson who by the way has obviously made no secret about having these views I mean it's kind of been a long time coming even though we're sort of used to reading the new you know the announcements by tim in, you know the sunday times by tim shipman the week before it kind of caught us all by surprise uh but but besides that it was it wasn't uh it wasn't really a surprise at all um and the fact that he used to be foreign secretary i think is quite an important part to this because i think well I, I remember sitting in in conversations about how uh, I think foreign secretaries sometimes felt um, slight frustration about how when they are visiting uh, countries where we have significant uh, aid programs, they might not receive as much attention or as warm a welcome, or maybe not warm is the right word, but to the same extent that, say, the French count their French counterparts would do, where the foreign minister is also the one who writes um, the checks for aid, putting it bluntly. So uh, I think there was always a bit of a sense, and I, I could tell this from my different days, that you know the countries we're dealing with, the governments, they know very well who's in charge of the purse strings. So I think you know that's one element. So I think it, it sort of shows how. Uh, FCO and DFID, even though on the whole, I think they they work very well together. In particular, like um, the you know it's predominantly the African department and the Asian department in FCO who have the most interaction with DFID. I think they do work well, and they often you know they both have a presence 
on the ground and on the whole that works well. But there are instances where they might not always be as streamlined and speaking in as much of the same voice as you would want as a government. So I think that is, um, you know, it's definitely rooted in, in policy, uh, but it doesn't hurt that it's a popular decision, uh, you know, a popular thing with um, his base. Absolutely. Would you mind just sort of telling us a little bit of, um, or giving us some insight into the um, examples of where they do or don't work together, some of the projects that um, one does that another might not help? So can you give us some sort of real, um, I suppose, sort of grounded examples of exactly the ways in which you could foresee this working well? The biggest benefit will be uh, from sort of the FCO's point of view uh, will be in the countries where DFID has a presence. So as I alluded to earlier that, you know, that's predominantly Africa and, and Asia. And um, that is um, that is sort of on the ground when you're talking about programmes and, you know, having, you know, having influence as... Um, as a as a as a you know as a as a country, you will have probably the most sort of immediate impact if it's just a bit more streamlined. Having said that, I think um, the other areas where it could have a really positive impact is around climate change, and so climate change has become an increasing focus um, at the Department for International Development. Uh, and that was something when I was there that we, you know, my boss Penny worked very hard on to become sort of you know, really cemented and as as a key focus. And uh, the Foreign Office also does a lot around obviously environmental diplomacy. And so I think when those two things come together, uh, that could be um, quite a powerful thing for that agenda. And then you know there are obviously just when you think about. Um, looking at, say, the UN or uh, at, at conventions around the world, um, development really does um, boost our, our soft power and our credentials. And I think we are very well recognised for that. And, of course, what I'm about to say does come with a risk, which I guess we can talk about later. But if done well, uh, the Foreign Secretary and the Foreign Office, or the new Foreign Office, all of a sudden has all this new cloud of the programmes that they are implementing and, uh, you know, the reputation, bringing the reputation to the table that the UK enjoys when it comes to to our, our aid programmes. Thanks. So one sort of final question before I um, ask on to Steve, but can you give us some examples of the kind of soft power that uh, DFID helps us to sort of realise? We have a reputation for generally generally care you know leaving in an agenda of not leaving anyone behind and wanting to um fight poverty and eliminate poverty around the world um and the fact that we do it with such skill uh because the department of international development really does have an incredibly high caliber of civil servants and i think that's recognized across whitehall it sort of really attracts um fantastic people that's but part largely also because they really care about this agenda and if it probably wasn't for being able to work on development in government they probably wouldn't be civil servants um 
but it, you know it really has these skills and the expertise and they know um how to manage seriously large and complex pro- uh, projects and um get results um that you know that is recognized by obviously the countries in which these programs are based but also just more widely so we when we talk about development people people listen and so for example the world bank uh unlike many other countries it's not the chancellor who uh is the uk governor to the world bank it is the diffid secretary of state and um i remember going to their annual meeting and you know it's quite obvious you know we are a seriously big player we obviously well we we give quite a lot of money <laughs> to the world bank uh but we have a as a result we have a real say as to what issues uh we want to be um uh promoted and you know during my time that was climate change and uh, disability was an issue were both issues close to penny's heart so that's where you sort of see how you can really um have impact and i think that is also largely but you know the soft power does does play into that because you know we're not talking about defense capabilities it is um actually making a difference in the world for the better that's brilliant thanks so much Laura. so steve why is this move so controversial why have been people are people upset about it we've had tony blair for one coming out against this idea so why has it upset people? Um, yeah, I was trying to get a feel for this earlier in the week. So I've scanned some of the different headlines to try and get a, an idea of the different things people are upset on, upset about. And I think I've identified four things, many of which Laura has just um, touched on. So I'm just going to run through them. So one is that people are saying this movie is unnecessary. I think what's meant by that, and this is a point that Blair made, actually, if you listen to his video on it, uh, what's meant by that is that the kind of strategic realignment of foreign policy and aid, supposedly you could do without actually merging the foreign office with DFID or abolishing DFID, depending on how you want to put it. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, another thing I, that Laura has actually touched on is that DFID has a fabulous reputation around the world. Again, this is a point that Blair made. Um, and there's a worry that this might sort of waste that very good work that's happened over the, the years since DFID was established. Now, Laura was just saying that that might might not be the case, but, um, but that is one of the worries. Another one, and this, this might be more of a, a sort of gut reaction than a, a rational argument, but I think the timing during a global pandemic, which uh, the recession on the back of which will hit poor people in the poorest parts of the world, the timing perhaps doesn't look particularly good. And, and, and the reason that it doesn't look good is, is comes to the fourth point, which is a suspicion that this isn't really about a strategic realignment of foreign policy and aid, and it's actually a way for paving the way for cuts uh, by the back door. Um, actually, Andrew Mitchell, so a, uh, a former development secretary in the Conservative Party, he made this point that there'll be questions about what the 0.7% national income is spent on. So um, there's certainly a lot of anxiety in, uh, I think, the, the sector and people commenting on this and in the media, whether that comes from their view of the government or whether that comes from substances are probably a little bit harder to to find out it's interesting about your point about the timing and i know martin you actually you did, you said that you addressed that at the very start i mean one of the things that um it did occur to me is if it's depending on when it's done in september but september is the 
the, the the aim or the deadline they've publicly given themselves for this is that it might all be done ahead of unger you know the united nations general general assembly and they might want to um you know be ready to go on that front um uh, so that, that that would explain it but also you know this is a sort of in a way like you know it's a divisive issue and it gets uh you know the fact that they did it in a in a rather busy week um you know goes to show and uh, you know from their point of view it went very well because it you know in, an, in any regular week it would have been i suspect on the front pages or maybe not front pages but you know it, it would have been a page you know it would have gotten a lot more attention than it did this week just because there was it was competing with so much other news how unhelpful is it that the prime minister has said things that are quite disparaging about Diffid? so the suspicion that he's sort of anti the sort of aid agenda perhaps gets mm. lifted up so i was looking earlier and you've got comments like it's a cash point in the sky or we're giving millions to people who chop the, the heads off their citizens those kind of things um mm. does that is that is that something that you think makes the sort of sector more anxious because they've heard all this and they don't know what to make of it i mean yeah i, I... To an extent, yeah. I mean, I mean, yes. But the the sentence cash point in the sky. I think you know, dispensing aid with no regard to the UK interests or values. I think that's what he said. Was um, I mean, probably would have had alarm bells uh, ringing. Um, but you know, he, he made clear the zero point seven is going to stay, and that it is a genuine genuine merger. Um, and uh, but you know, proof on being the pudding. But I mean. Language obviously does always matter. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I think if done well, and I think the intent is, is there, but, it, you know, for it to be done well, it, it could be, it could definitely be a positive thing, but it would be a total shame um, if development, you know, and the government's continued commitment to development isn't upheld. And I think also just our offering and standing in the world would be quite negatively impacted by that. And I think the Foreign Office recognises that. And um, interestingly, I was speaking to a former ambassador last week about this, and he, you know, he was felt slightly, obviously he's an FCO, former FCO man, and he felt slightly, um, uh, not for, yeah, just a bit, you know, felt it was a bit of a shame that people just view the Foreign Office as, as sort of just, you know, being like really hawkish in that sense. And he got, you know, he had a feeling that they'd probably really welcome this because they'd, you know, would have sort of renewed sense of purpose and policy work to get stuck into. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, yeah, rhetoric matters, but what matters more are actions. <laughs> and uh, from what they've said they're, they're, they're doing and, from sort of what's been said around uh, the steps they're taking around this merger, I think it is positive. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, obviously, the, you know, it has to be done in a way that they bring, you know, the best of, of each department. And one of the things I would say that I always found really interesting, and I mean, this is particularly when looking at this through the, the lens of the Sustainable Development Goals, um, is that, you know, the aim is to, the target is to reach all these global goals by 2030. And obviously this year, if you read the United Nations report on the progress on the goals this year has been quite, you know, it's been a lot slower and COVID-19 has obviously had a, you know, set us back quite a lot. It's had a huge impact on it. But looking at, sorry, I digress, but looking through the views of the sustainable development goals, um, a lot of 
what's necessary in order to achieve those goals is by working um, with everyone effectively really essentially but like you know really building partnerships and um so for example i think the figure is sort of astonishing and it might be larger now with with the covid worldwide um situation but if, in order to reach global goals you there's a sort of a, a financial gap of like three trillion uh us dollars a year and so even if like diffid were to uh you know who spends you know a, a great deal of of money compared to many countries on international development and if every every other country were to spend the same amount and sort of at the same level and uh, and quality as diffid does we'd still be nowhere close to reaching these goals so basically you you're relying on the private sector you're relying on charities you're relying on individuals to uh to pull their their weight and so one of the things when i was at diffid was penny was very keen on this notion of partnerships for global goals and to do that you need to convene people and that just isn't i think it's fair to say diffid's natural strong suit their their skill set and their strengths are in programs and they do that brilliantly and there's like in as i said earlier insane number of amount of expertise ranging from education to science to job creation to uh emergency relief like you name it it's in it's in that building um but convening wasn't one of them so very sort of soft skills which are the skills that the foreign office does have and so and obviously foreign office less so the programmatic uh, elements so if merged well and properly i think there could be huge benefits um around that we talked about development it's sometimes called aid and it's the most unpopular area of government spending now the commitment to the 0.7 percent target has been sort of reaffirmed reiterated but seeing as overseas aid aid is consistently named by about 60 percent of people as an area of government spending that should be cut is this potentially cover for doing that and the pm admittedly has said he's not planning to lower the commitment to 0.7%. But do you think that this might be paving the way? And if so, given the public unpopularity, wouldn't it be fair enough? That's a very good question. And, I mean, that's what I guess everyone in the development sector or people who support 0.7 are asking themselves. The commitment has been made. And I think politically, number 10 does recognise that you know, 0.7 is a policy issue. Merging two departments is uh, is not a policy issue. That is an issue for, you know, it's an internal sort of how you organise things. So, you know, they're, they're very different things. And um, 0.7, abolishing that will be way more controversial than merging these departments. So I think they'd be very wary not to do that. And also, I think with, you know, all the talk about wanting to really um, boost our global standing and global Britain, I think there is a real understanding in government that 0.7 plays a very large part in that. Um, The other question, though, that you sort of, the other angle of your question is public opinion 
and um that that is of course uh, a very different beast um and i think there's it's a real shame because a lot of the great work that is done with a 0.7 doesn't usually make the press but then you know i guess most good news doesn't make the meat of the press uh, anyway and also throughout uh even during cameron days um they you know they, they made a decision not to highlight the stories about development because they knew it wasn't positive so very little effort has been put into sort of try and change public opinion and sort of demonstrate the good and the value that it brings back to the uk and i think that is i mean it's, it's I mean, that's a whole different opening can of worms because some people disagree that uh, age you know development should be um serving the national interest as a as a conservative i, I do think there's a role to play in that um but and, and and clearly boris johnson does too um but it does it you know it does serve a purpose and like for example the last uh four months differed has done huge amounts uh on covid19 around the world yet it hasn't received much public attention um and so <laughs> that is just always really frustrating and uh, and as a as a political advisor in in number uh, in the department for international development that was always obviously the thing you're sort of grappling with um and you you know you try and find those stories that are interesting and also will that papers papers like the daily mail and the sun would like and you know we were able to find quite a few but um you know it's it's hard when you've got a lot of the large publications um you know who aren't on your side okay well that's a perfect segue i think into looking at this in a broader issue which is looking at what we'll call global britain basically ever since the eu referendum we've heard the idea that after brexit we would embrace a sort of global role global britain um, freed from the sh- sort of shackles of EU membership, the UK will be able to find its voice on the international stage. And the UK government says that, quote, global Britain is about reinvesting in our relationships, championing the rules-based international order, and demonstrating the UK is open, outward-looking and confident on the world stage. So what's your sort of interpretation of a what that might mean and b what it is that a global britain would mean and would stand for so um well quite a lot i mean it's hard to just define because i think it encapsulates um just uh, yeah so much um you know fundamentally i think it's about uh, being a sort of outward-looking nation, um, you know, demonstrating that we are open as a country, that we are, you know, investing in our relationships um, with uh, countries around the world. Um, it's about, I guess, it's about championing the rules-based international order, but also, um, you know, really, really taking a sort of leadership role in in responding to the global challenges um, that that we are facing as as, as a world. And um, so, you know, there, there's a lot that falls under that. I think, um, you know, having those strong ties of countries, um, 
soft power is I think going to be a huge uh, should be a huge part of sort of how we uh, or you know an important thing to consideration when when formulating our strategy I guess as, as global Britain um, but also when you know looking at the strong ties of countries I think it's I would like to see a far stronger presence in in countries um, so within our embassies and I think that you know there's been cuts everywhere but the foreign office has also had many cuts and um that has been i think a a, a real shame so um i hope that that will be boosted um of course development is is linked to the soft power so development will be um you know and also um you know it's fundamentally the, the route in into helping respond to uh, and solve global challenges so that would be a really part important part um and then of course there's trade which links into it um but and then fundamentally i think climate change and i I really hope that um climate change will be uh, a huge part of sort of the conversation around global britain and and i hope and suspect that it will be um quite an important um issue like a a priority in this new this new department not least because boris uh the prime minister clearly cares about it a great deal together with um, girls education those are, I think his sort of two uh, main priorities um, in, in the development space anyway so um, yeah hopes <laughs> that's my hope. Okay well Steve let's bring it over to you then so I mean all of these are sort of very laudable aims but a lot of people seem to think that our role as a sort of global player will be diminished by our exit from the EU that rather than being one of several voices within the European Union block, that Britain standing uh, sort of apart from that will in fact diminish our standing on the international stage. So do you think it's true that Brexit will diminish us? That was certainly the consensus view, I think, uh, during the referendum campaign and, and ever since. I mean, obviously, we've spent quite a few years working out Brexit and we still are, so... Probably the jury's still out a bit. The thing I've found hard about this topic, um, as well as many others around Brexit, is it's quite hard to get a, a sort of sober assessment out of anyone that you might read or listen to, in the sense that the views were seemingly so polarised over it, either Brexit was going to be an absolute disaster or the best thing ever. So sort of disentangling all that can be a little bit tricky. Um, let me go through a few of the things that people have raised around Brexit that might undermine us on the world stage. So the obvious one is loss of influence in the EU, uh, over EU policy, over the single market and all that. that. That's pretty straightforward to understand. We're no longer a route into Europe in that way. Um, people have also looked at our economic well-being, doubting whether we can be as strong an economy outside of, outside of Europe. And will we still have the influence, for example, of the G7 and other similar clubs that we have in the past? Um, and the final thing, and it's something Laura's been talking about sort of, I think, uh, a fair bit in the conversation about DFID, is that does it, does it damage our, our soft power, our sort of reputation? Um, and I, I wonder whether part, part of the problem with that was actually the chaos that seemed to surround Brexit for the sort of few years since the referendum campaign did make Britain look a little bit more chaotic abroad. Um, so I think those are the things that, we, that people have said uh, might lead to Britain being diminished on the world stage. We are, we are still, I think, waiting to find out. 
just going back to global Britain for a second, is of course, a, I think we started hearing that phrase during, you know, the 2016 referendum campaign uh, as a kind of uh, catch-all for things we'll do once we're no longer sort of tethered to Europe. Um, but I guess as um, perhaps you both alluded to, we're still waiting to find out quite what all that means. As with so much when it comes to Brexit, we'll just have to see what happens. Now, um, finally, I just want to come on to sort of centrist politics away from the the issue of um, development. Now, today, we've seen potentially the issue of leadership return to politics. We've seen Keir Starmer sack Rebecca Long-Bailey as Shadow Education Secretary for tweeting her support for an article which included an anti-Semitic trope, allegedly. And his swift and decisive action contrasts strongly with Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who's refused to take action against Housing Community Secretary Robert Jenry, who's been criticised for his actions in approving a development which has made the Conservative Party don a Conservative Party donor a lot of money. Now, I don't necessarily want to get into the specifics of the cases. What I want to talk about is whether or not Starmer's actions have been for high principle, low cunning, or any kind of mixture whether this is, could be an issue in the sort of centre ground of politics and whether it's presenting a sort of contrast. So do either of you have a view on that? Well, I'll, I'll bite um, um, first. So on it, I think that Starmer kind of looks quite good either way. So either, as you said, he's principled and is taking a zero-tolerance stance on anti-Semitism, or he's uh, smart and pragmatic and realises that, that he can't be seen to... To tolerate any of this and actually he'll possibly show uh, the government up in there uh, less slow to crack down on sort of perceived wrongdoing. Um, so I, don't, I think it comes across well either way. I mean yeah it's impossible to know what the motivation was but um, it seems like a, a bit of a no-brainer on his part. I suspect it's a bit of both because um, well I mean I'm, I'm not as au fait with uh, Labour politics but um, I think it was quite clear that Rebecca Long Bailey was in a shadow cabinet um, because <laughs> he sort of had to give her a spot rather than I, you know, I doubt she would have made the shortlist had she not not run for leader herself. Um, and you know, they just have such different different outlooks on 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 things and the world. Um, so on the one hand, I think. Uh, it comes across, he made it, you know, whether it was principled or not, he, he certainly managed to come across as principled, and that's when politics often <laughs> what, what matters most. Um, and, you know, making it very clear he was taking a, a, a zero, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Um, uh, help me out, zero guys. Tolerance, I? Zero tolerance, thanks. Uh, zero tolerance on anti-Semitism. And I think, you know, he is right and I think this is where I say it's a bit of a both because what we have seen over the past gosh was it three years that that is a really deep deeply rooted deep rooted issue in the Conservative Party going all the way down and I think that is where leadership does matter and under Corbyn that was allowed to fester uh, and so I think you know you you do have to tackle that on um uh, as as sort of leader that is you know that falls within your responsibility so i think it's a bit of both one of the issues that um starmer might want a bit of room to depart from the kind of momentum left on is uh britain being sort of positive about things 
uh, that we that we touched on, like supporting uh, global institutions, uh, being a champion for um, sort of human rights, democracy around the world. Where whereas the sort of left of the Labour Party were very miserableist about Britain's role in anything and, and considered it all to be sort of uh, a hangover from imperialism. So um, that on on this issue and I think many other issues, it's people are watching to see whether this is the part of some sort of greater movement. No, thanks, Steve. I think that's a, that's a really good point. That I think the some of the issues that come up around this topic are around, um, as you say, about the institutions. Laura, you've talked about the rules-based international order. And I think there is something maybe we could perhaps think about coming back to sometime, about whether um, development and aid can play more of a role in as a sort of investment vehicle that um, it's not just a case of giving people money because we're nice but actually it's investing in their futures and ours and it could be potentially an area where it all sort of comes together but uh, that's perhaps a story for another day so Laura thank you so much for coming on and uh, giving us your insights and expertise I found that really insightful uh, and enjoyed that so thank you so much for your time. No, thanks. Um, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Excellent. Steve, thank you so much, as always, for my partner in crime. And um, <laughs> thank you very much for listening to everyone. Uh, this has been the No Man's Land podcast. And please, if you've enjoyed this, uh, share this widely with your friends and anyone who you think might find it useful. So thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>